Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Patrick Maguire, Stephen Bush, and Anush Chikidian. In this episode, we talk about the latest developments on the coronavirus response in the UK, universal credit, and you ask us on what Keir Starmer, if he wins, what Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet will look like. So it's been another week of the government's response to coronavirus. And Stephen, as you wrote in your morning call this morning, it seems like the tide is beginning to turn for them. Do you want to say why you think that's the case? Well, I think the interesting thing is, I think this morning, for those of you who who, who subscribe and get this on the day we record it, and the day after for those of you who don't, we saw sort of the, the most critical front pages in terms of the government's handling of this since the crisis began. And I think from memory, the most critical that we've seen since Boris Johnson became prime minister, you know, not just from kind of, you know, the the independent and the left-wing press that's small i independent but from from you know right across the political firmament including of course the telegraph with the main target of their eye being the failure to get a grip on the testing regime now of course the public is still hugely behind boris johnson's government as they are every incumbent government in the democratic world pretty much what i think is interesting about it is i think this is being driven by a couple of things. One is ultimately the testing is really important, particularly in hospitals, right? This is, I think, the thing that is not sufficiently understood about what has gone wrong in Italy is that if you don't have adequate testings of patients and and hospital staff, you end up in a situation in which hospitals become the main locus of infections, not only of doctors themselves, but of course of other patients. And that's what drives the death rate up, not just to people dying directly from COVID-19, but people who, you know, who cannot avail themselves of, of 20th century medicine because their hospital's been turned into a sort of unenterable hotbed of infection. And I think the interesting thing, right, is that basically in the last decade, the kind of 
strategic consensus between whether it's people who work for Jeremy Corbyn or people who work for David Cameron or people who work for Boris Johnson or Theresa May or uh, whoever, you know, people who work for whoever the next Labour leader is, whoever he may turn out to be, will basically all say, look, the front pages don't matter in terms of what they in terms of what they do to readers because of the change in media consumption habits. What they do matter is that they influence the editorial positions and decisions of the broadcasters, particularly the BBC. Now, the fascinating question I think isn't is that still the case in an era when every media organization is primarily produced by people working from home including the the main broadcasters yeah I mean I think I think you can tell that it's sort of creeping into the attitudes towards the daily number 10 press conference if you just look at the communication side of things I think the tide is turning there as well in parallel so at the beginning they were kind of a novelty you know you had the experts flanking the prime minister they were really providing a service for news starved political journalists and if you were lucky you got your question in there as well and I think the sort of press attitude towards them was quite sympathetic but I think in this week you've seen that turn so not only have you seen more negative reactions if you watch the actual number 10 press conference on their sort of live stream you can see people's comments on it sort of Facebook viewers comments on it and that's really interesting because that's turned more hostile and also the questions from the journalists have not only turned a little bit more direct but they've turned more repetitive as well always asking about the testing about why we've been missing the targets and also about why only just 2,000 NHS frontline workers have been tested so far you know these figures are going to cut through I think pretty quickly. And yes, the spike in approval ratings has been massive. I think YouGov was saying that it's the highest approval figures for a government in 17 years. But that's a big spike. And, you know, a a big quick spike can be followed by a big quick dip. And I think that could happen because of the way that they're constantly sort of prevaricating over the question of uh, questions about testing and also about the protective equipment as well, which has been a theme from the very start. We're still hearing from health workers all the time about not getting the equipment they need. And also care homes have now been saying they've had to go to vets and beg for masks and to schools for for their science goggles and things like that. And those stories aren't going to stop. And actually, it is the BBC and the broadcasters who are bringing a lot of those stories through phone-ins. So I do think that even if they're not taking their lead from the papers as much, they they are taking their lead from from radio phone-ins like Emma Barnett's show a lot more and that's cutting through a lot more. And you're you're also getting opposition politicians who are being a bit bolder about not politicising it, but being directly critical of the government. Jess Phillips was on the radio talking about ministers lying about things that they're they're telling us in the press conferences, for for example. So I think the tide has changed in those terms as well. And I don't know if you've you've heard this, but from people that I've spoken to who are close to the coronavirus response in terms of the actual sort of technical stuff like the equipment supply and the ventilator prep and everything, there's a frustration that announcements are apparently being held back to sort of stagger good news or to save the good announcements for the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about politicians being willing to criticise the government explicitly, because I think the most interesting thing is the extent to which Tory MPs are, are increasingly willing to do this. Liam Fox and Jeremy Hunt are two cabinet... Well, Jeremy Hunt in particular, Liam Fox has been slightly slightly coy about it. He, he has been sort of putting out, uh, putting about analyses which very implicitly criticise the government's response. But Jeremy Hunt is just out there without necessarily framing it as his revenge mission, but just, you know, pointing out every turn that Boris Johnson is getting this wrong. And I'd say that's certainly a, it's a view that is, you know, criticising the government is a popular and necessary 
pastime among Tory MPs at the minute. But there is also a degree to which some of them, I don't think, have grasped quite how bad this is. So I was talking to a few Tory MPs this morning for a piece about um, their reaction to the headlines, because these are certainly the most hostile set of headlines to to a government, particularly from the Tory press, since the dog days of, of Theresa May's premiership over Brexit. I said to a couple, a couple of them said, you know, the problem here isn't necessarily, yes, we don't have an adequate answer on, on testing, but they claim, to pick up something you said, Anoush, about the changing nature of these press conferences, their complaint is journalists are trying to extract information from us but also conduct the public inquiry at the same time. So their contention is, yes, ask us what our plan to do now is, but why do you keep asking us about why we didn't do X, Y, or Z before? And I sort of think, yeah, fine, but also those are the questions people want answered. You can't understand the failures at this point in any other context than, you know, as Lawrence Friedman wrote a very good piece for the MS website yesterday, they are consequences of decisions taken weeks and months ago. So to say, oh, come on, guys, please, can you just can you just be nicer to Alok Sharma and, and ask, you know, what you're going to do? Well, yes, the, the press are doing that and the answer isn't adequate. But then also, I, I don't really understand, I don't think they have a leg to stand on in complaining, but you're also asking us why we've been making mistakes. That's very relevant, you know, that's the reason why more people are dying here than, than in Germany, basically. So That is such a funny argument, I think, because obviously politicians should be held to account in real time and you can't just wait for the inquiry, not least because the inquiry would probably turn up the question about why journalists didn't ask anything at the time. But I think on the, on the communications point and the way the tide is turning, I think another thing to consider is the way that there's a sort of alternate communications channel um, which we're always made aware of during general elections. Certainly general elections when I was little, I remember always people reminding you that, that everyone knows someone who works for the NHS because the NHS has such a large workforce that everyone has a personal connection to a nurse or a doctor or someone else who's involved on the front line of our health service. And one of my best friends is a doctor in an intensive care unit in Southampton Hospital. And I think it's probably an experience that lots of people are having that as well as hearing the the macro picture, you also just get the personal account of your close friend or someone that you know quite well, or, you know, your friend's mom, who's a nurse, getting the quite personal account of just the kind of unromantic statement that they all know that they have been treating patients, even in in other wards that aren't to do with the COVID response, even like the non-COVID wards, that they have all been treating patients who have eventually tested positive for COVID-19 and then have been moved to different wards. And they all know that there's like a reasonably good chance that they've had it, but they just sort of accept that, you know, it would be impossible. And like if suddenly they were all tested, the number would shoot up and the NHS would be in a different kind of of difficulty. I think hearing that from from NHS workers who aren't necessarily very political and who aren't really even in a position to be that political at the moment because in a way that kind of anger doesn't really help them. They just have to get on with the job and they can't be too fixated on what they do and don't have because they just have to focus on like doing what they can. But I think hearing it that way, I think as well as being worried about older relatives, people will be really worried about NHS workers that they know personally, as well as the ones that they don't know. But because there's a personal connection there for so many people, I think that that lends a sort of an emotional depth to the way the tone of newspapers is changing and the way PPE and 
testing are such emotive important issues at the moment yeah and also as well as everyone knowing someone who works in the nhs or in local government or any of these frontline services that are so vital at the moment and always really is the fact that i don't know if you guys are in your sort of local volunteering groups but there's been a lot of a lot more activity in terms of trying to stop people from making political points in the whatsapp groups and 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 the online forums and things and that suggests to me that people are getting frustrated and, you know, whether it's posting a mean Boris meme or saying something a bit deeper, I think that activity has increased this week. Yeah, I I think, Al, that point about everyone knowing somebody who works for it, because I I kind of think, unlike almost any other type of key worker, right, so most people don't know someone who is a senior civil servant, or if they do, they don't know someone who is a delivery driver, right? But everyone will know someone, whether they work as a cleaner in an NHS hospital, a clinician, a nurse, et cetera, et cetera, will know someone. And most people will know people in all of those groups. And so it's just more acute. On Patrick, on your point about the kind of the government response to the media, one of the things I'm finding kind of oddly frustrating over the last couple of days is this opinion, which I don't think will be a surprise to long term listeners to know that I broadly share, which is this frustration about this story being covered primarily by political editors and political reporters rather than medical and science journalists. But this way that this has kind of been instrumentalised by a certain, this kind of almost as a kind of pro-government talking point, as if Downing Street has no way to control who turns up at press conferences or who it calls on, right? You know, the, the reason why we've ended up in this slightly odd situation in terms of how this is covered and people don't feel they're getting the information they need is the government has decided partly kind of because it's, you know, institutions always tend to do what they've always done, partly because the government kind of suddenly decided to, to to treat COVID like it were an opposition party and kind of be like, oh, a leak here, delayed news thing here. As Anusha was saying, I similarly keep hearing about lots of frustration sort of both from uh, from people working in Whitehall, but people working on the front lines and they feel that they have this thing where, you know, kind of the, the old rules of, well, this has to wait so it can be announced so that the government can get the right news story in its grid they feel that kind of stuff is still going on but the other reason why i think why that why that persists is that it is in the government's interest to have a situation in which you have political journalists having to both cover the political story i hear things like is nhs england covering this as well as nhs scotland or the nhs in wales is public health england this body created in 2012 in the reorg is it performing well under its first major test right those important political questions and those delivery questions about ppe while also having to do health questions like well look should we be wearing masks if we can't get a mask should we be putting a scarf around our face when we go out and what's happened is is because because you have one group of journalists having to do both of those things, they're not doing either of them particularly well. I think that the government has benefited from that for some time. And I think the kind of growing confusion and irritation with the government is partly the kind of consequence of something that was working fine for them literally four days ago. And I'm finding it a bit annoying, this kind of like, oh, if it isn't the consequences of my own actions kind of thing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So in the past fortnight, nearly a million people have applied successfully for universal credit, and that's 10 times the usual amount of claimants in any given fortnight. And these figures, just to sort of illustrate how astonishing they are, that's a 500% rise in claims a week, which is hugely more than the first year in the 2008 financial crisis when applications for job seekers allowance rose by 78% in a year. So these figures are huge, but I actually... I don't know what you guys think, but I actually wouldn't be surprised if the the actual number is a lot higher than this, because first of all, these are the figures that the department itself has decided to disclose, and that's successful applicants. And from anecdotal evidence, we know that there's a lot of people who are still waiting to be able to apply, either waiting for hours on the phone or struggling with the gov.uk verify process, which has had problems even before coronavirus. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was actually higher than what we've already heard but on the other hand I think the figures are being seen as synonymous with unemployment figures which is also not correct because lots of people will still be working who are applying for universal credit just maybe on lower earnings or on statutory sick pay so they will be getting some kind of income while applying for the benefit and actually in general a significant proportion of people who who are on universal credit are working. I suppose the the big question is what the political fallout will be from so many hundreds of thousands more people, many of whom will never have been on benefits before and may even have never have known someone who's been on benefits before coming into contact with the most flawed policy of successive conservative led governments. Well, yeah, that's that's famously the um, most potent argument in favour of universalism in um, Mm. the provision of welfare. Obviously, God, I've just realised the irony of the name. Universal credit, as you say, has been anything yeah. but universal, both in terms of the people who receive it, despite Ian Duncan Smith's aspirations, and indeed, you know, the consistency of its application. But there is there is an argument, as you say, that it will become a, a politically a hot button issue when people who who would otherwise not have had any contact with this arm of the state at all suddenly realise that it is deeply, deeply dysfunctional, and that people are expected to live under its yoke and that they are now among their number so this could you know as you say have potentially enduring consequences and also something that's often a criticism often leveled towards the Labour Party and indeed in the page of the New Statesman on this podcast quite justifiably is that they don't have a welfare policy Mm. you know there's a great there was a massive black hole um, for most of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership right up until 2019 where a coherent welfare policy should have been there is a chance that actually this entire episode and particularly the provision of welfare and whatever during it will make their task much easier it's quite possible that will answer the crisis will answer that question for Keir Starmer and potentially detoxify it as well because obviously it's been partly you know as a consequence of public opinion but also partly because of Labour's own squeamishness has been you know one of the stickiest wickets they have played on in policy terms and now the sting 
might well be taken out of this particular policy issue by, by this crisis in in the long term. Yeah, and I also think I've, I've detected some frustration from other government departments as well about the general crapness of universal credit because it is the thing that's supposed to mop up the people who aren't covered by the, the emergency schemes that they've announced. So I've been speaking to people who you know started their job in March and therefore are left off the job retention scheme and that's that's hundreds of thousands of people and any of those people who have been laid off will be relying on universal credit and it's just not good enough for them and it's similar with people who are self-employed but aren't within the criteria to get the self-employment grants as well so it's sort of exposing you know much to the annoyance of of other government departments like the treasury the gaps in their plans and if universal credit was a great generous well-functioning competent welfare system then that wouldn't be so much of an issue and i think that is precisely the kind of known unknown about this period right it is that universal credit has only ever existed yet in a period in which unemployment was something experienced by a tiny minority of people in which despite what many in the coalition government feared and uh, many in the Labour Party expected, austerity did not lead to a large period of unemployment. Now, when we last had a large period of unemployment under the Conservatives, welfare policy was actually quite loose and they also, they used incapacity benefit, Mm. now rebranded and and made significantly crueler as the personal independent payment as a way of massaging that further. But I think it's a lot easier to command long-term political consent for high unemployment if claiming unemployment benefit is not deeply painful. And ditto, is easier to have political consent for treating the self-employed very differently in terms of their the amount they have to wait if your welfare system is working and is, is more compassionate and less conditional. So I think even if um, at the end of this crisis they can kind of dust universal credit off, remove some of the things they pulled out and some of the things that I assume they'll have to pull out of it further, seeing as it feels to me likely that there will be a global downturn after all of this is over. I have never really been able to convince myself of a hypothetical, in in the same way I couldn't convince myself tax credit cuts would would ever be politically swallowable, of a hypothetical in which unemployment becomes a large-scale phenomenon again, and you see in its current form could survive. And now's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Ask Us. Us. So we've had this question, I think, from multiple listeners. What will Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet look like if he wins the Labour leadership election? And a shout out to Thomas, who's one of the people who sent that in. He can take the credit. Thanks, Thomas. Well, it's the question. It's the question. I'm trying to think of (laughs) Labour MP called Thomas now. Oh, God. Are there any Labour MPs called Tom? Tom Blenkinsop from beyond the from the political afterlife, maybe I don't know, but yes, that's the question everybody is asking in the PLP and in the Labour movement more broadly. The answer will either be taken as evidence that Keir Starmer is sincere in his mission to unite the Labour Party, unite in inverted commas, or not. What won't it look like is perhaps an easier question to answer. Quite deliberately, obviously, it won't be drawn exclusively from one wing of the party or another. Not that Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet was necessarily politically homogenous. Really, it was a sort of coalition of the willing that spanned from every wing of the party, from the campaign group to the old right. But I'd say that a concern among 
some of Keir Starmer's supporters in the PLP. And Keir Starmer's task is not just to give jobs to his supporters, right? He has to give jobs to people who didn't support him, to Rebecca Long-Bailey and Lisa Nandy, but also to balance his shadow cabinet to reflect the breadth of the PLP, which is sort of his sort of his mission. I mean, it won't be as, you know, he won't, be, he won't go as far as Ian Lavery and John Trickett, but he still needs to be sort of fishing in in that pool for a couple of posts. But certainly among some of Keir Starmer's supporters, there's a concern that it will be a shadow cabinet uh, assembled by quota and not necessarily by what they see as loyalty or merit. So they'll think, well, you know, he'll have to tick off a certain number of MPs from the North. A certain. It really, it will reflect, quite before we get to name people, there are quite delicate political considerations, considerations that need to be balanced. And a lot of people are going to be cheesed off naturally because if you have 88 backers in the PLP not every one of those people is going to get a front bench job or certainly a real front bench job that people actually care about yeah I think the odd thing I guess about this reshuffle is that you know cast your mind back to the era when we were allowed to go outside more than once a day the theory of indeed actually the thing that in different ways all three candidates were actually offering when you kind of sanded down the rhetorical dividing lines was a kind of a better class of Corbynism right we will do more effective UQs, we will hunt as a pack, we won't have individual members of the PLP doing freelance opposition, we'll work with uh, select committee chairs better, right? And Keir Starmer's sort of kind of day one improvement in his head was going to be improving the professionalism of the Labour Party as an opposition. Now, of course, it's difficult to see what bonuses you accrue from doing that in what is going to be a year in which there is no government agenda beyond fighting COVID-19, an agenda than the opposition shares and due to our devolution settlement is a co-author of, right? Like this this is a strategy that is, is also being made in Wales and in Scotland. So if you are the SNP in Westminster or Keir Starmer, your freedom to oppose it effectively is actually quite limited. So the question then I think becomes, if you if you don't think you're going to gain the benefits of professionalization do you then go actually i can have a more drastic reshuffle than i had planned to have which is why i think it might be uh, slightly more pronounced yeah like it, it, it might not be the kind of all things to all people reshuffle than some of his allies fear not least because i suspect that actually this idea that everyone has that there will be big jobs for lisa nandy and, and becky long bailey i don't think is going to be fulfilled i think they will both be given jobs in the shadow cabinet but i would not be at all surprised if they weren't very good ones yeah it's it, it's interesting but, but even in a sense when you have as many supporters as keir stone right and so many as many people you want to promote say say for instance you would have otherwise made preet gill shadow culture secretary but you have to give rebecca long bailey something it doesn't necessarily matter that rebecca long bailey gets a crap job secretary of state for widgets or whatever but it's the, is it not the opportunity cost of having to give that job to a, a sort of duty appointment, as it were, rather than... But I suppose the, the, something that someone in that sort of bracket pointed out to me was there are actually quite good jobs that if you're in the 2017 or 2015 intakes, you might content yourself with at Minister of State level, you know, important big briefs. So you don't, you don't necessarily need to be in the Shadow Cabinet to be happy, you know, in, in a sense that... What's the more important job, you know, shadow city minister or, I mean, culture? I mean, DCMS is a big department now because the, the digital thing, and particularly if Labour keeps hold of that, and um, broadband policy, but 
you know, would you rather be shadow minister for immigration if you're a 2017er? Or, you know, Lu- Lu- Louise Haig is evidence that actually you can have a much bigger profile as a good shadow minister of state than if you are, I don't know, to pluck her, not particularly media facing or indeed policy facing or indeed active shadow cabinet minister out of thin air, Margaret Greenwood. If you were given a choice of being one of those two people as an ambitious MP from uh, one of the newer intakes of Labour MPs, I think you'd certainly say Louise Haig every time. That's not to say the shadow DWP brief is a hospital pass, but you know there is every there is every possibility to be more conspicuous and effective w- without being around the shadow cabinet table. Yeah, and that also comes back to something that I think we've spoken about on the podcast before, which is how sensible would it be to sort of raid the select committee chairs for shadow cabinet posts because they've proved that you can get you know a lot of airtime and a lot of influence in those posts as opposed to being say shadow. DWP secretary. So I suppose the decisions made on that front will tell us whether or not we'll see a kind of Miliband 2.0 shadow cabinet or not, because a lot of those people are sort of faces from that era, Yvette Cooper, Rachel Reeves, Meg Hillier, the Eagle sisters. I mean, they're not select committee chairs, but they could be other people who will um who would sort of give that impression to to the new shadow cabinet and and Emily Thornbury and and Ed Miliband himself as well. So I suppose those kind of choices will tell us whether or not we're seeing we're seeing a sort of Miliband-esque renaissance or not. Yeah, and the and the interesting thing is Keir Starmer can have it both ways in that I think Stephen was among the first people to make this point that actually Rachel Reeves could be a, a de facto part of your opposition operation. You know, she could be really socking it to she could be socking it to Alok Sharma in a committee room, and she could be coordinating with Keir Starmer's lotto every step of the way, and you could get really um, score some definitive blows on the government, really effective scrutiny there without having to incur the backlash from Labour members of having her in your shadow cabinet and having the the sort of slightly dodgy optics uh, for many people. You know, whether it's just very online people is another question insofar as, you know, Rachel Reeves is recognised at all by the Labour membership outside of um, SW on Twitter. But anyway, in many ways, Keir Starmer already has a sort of, already has sort of several free hits on shadow cabinet appointments because those people are already in really great pulpits from which to uh, attack the government. And you don't actually need, why your interest served in bringing those good scrutineers inside the tent, or if not good scrutineers, because there's a... um. There's a live question as to whether, you know, this new trend for mic dropping, infinitely clippable select mm-hmm. committee chairs, I'm not going to say who I have in mind, but, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the pantomime exasperation, right, it makes for a great social media clip. Why would, why would you transfer that into the chamber when, you know, doing so isn't going to come out without a political cost? And also they are effective either as scrutineers or, you know, at performing scrutiny um, in their existing jobs. Yeah, so on that, since we've mentioned Rachel Reeves, who is the most frequently touted name to be Shadow Chancellor, what do we think of, of the likelihood of that happening? And I'm just interested in what your thoughts or what you're hearing on the other big offices of state. So who who would you pick for a Shadow Home Secretary or Shadow Foreign Secretary? I think Annalise Dodds is going to be Shadow Chancellor. I think that because lots of people have told me that I can't claim that it's definitely going to be correct. But I I would say, given the argument I've just made about select committee chairs, I think 
I would put rather put a five on Annalise Dodds than on um, than a Rachel Reeves. The interesting question there's an interesting question around Ed Miliband to whom Keir Starmer is politically and personally close. So you wonder whether you give him one of the big four offices of state. Ed Miliband, a shadow foreign secretary, has a has a decent ring to it, particularly if, or do you give him a, a, a climate brief? Or indeed, do you put him in your shadow cabinet at all? Uh, is that politically wise? Because although he's an election loser, so is William Hague. And I don't know whether those two things are comparable. William Hague came back. Ed Miliband might come back. I mean, I can certainly see the case for that. Home Secretary um, Stephen wrote a very convincing column for the Sunday Times a couple of months ago saying, actually, we all we all zero in on the appointment of a shadow chancellor to tell us about a leader's politics, when really, actually, those appointments sort of, they sort of just tell us what we already knew, right? In, in a sense that everybody said, oh, you know, it's really surprising that Jeremy Corbyn has appointed John McDonnell as, as shadow chancellor. In, you know, in a political sense, it wasn't. But actually, in terms of managing a PLP, it didn't make much sense. But it made a lot of it made a lot of sense in terms of ideologically and how a chancellor and a shadow chancellor should work. But actually, Stephen, I, I, your argument was that actually the, the 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 choice of shadow home secretary was the much more telling and significant thing. And th- this will be the choice that redefines really what Keir Starmer we're going to get in opposition. Yeah, because I think right, it's e- easy to forget, right? Not least because, like, and you've seen this with a lot of the kind of both tributes and attacks on Jeremy Corbyn as he stands down, right? The kind of unconscious Mott Bailey of Corbynism has been this kind of like, on the one hand, you have a very sensible fiscal rule, some very interesting stuff about the shape of the economy, particularly around things like, say, free broadband, and some actually a fairly tight day-to-day spending set of choices. With this rhetorical gloss that makes it seem like oh the good times are here again there'll be loads and loads of money spent on things which the slight weirdness about the 2019 campaign is you had a manifesto which was very much in the old old Corbyn world and then you had like oh but by the way we're also going to spend untold billions on waspy which means you do have this slightly weird thing now where people kind of say things like you know this was the first labor era in which and then names a policy area on which jeremy corbyn was complete continuity of what went went before but in terms of like actually existing corbynism right so like say let's say basically all of the 2017 manifesto and if you ignore all of the the policy announcements that weren't in the 2019 manifesto as a document but came out in the run-up and before it that is something which broadly most of the PLP is into so you kind of in an odd way if you want to do something different from that of course your appointment as chance shadow answer matters a great deal and your your biggest constraint is still who is qualified to do it right that was Ed Miliband's big problem right he he desperately did not want Ed Balls or Yvette Cooper but he struggled with the fact that in 2010 the only qualified people to do that job were Ed Balls or Yvette Cooper. And his experiment with having someone who was not qualified to do that in Alan Johnson was a, you know, wall-to-wall disaster for everyone involved. But the thing which the PLP is very badly split on is actually the immigration policy. And I think if if I were advising Keir Starmer, I'd say, look, that is the thing where it's really important to take the party with you. And also where it's important to try and lock as many people into it as possible, whichever direction you end up in, right? So, yeah, one of the fascinating sort of subplots of the deputy leadership campaign is actually uh, Angela Rayner has been incredibly frank about the fact that she clearly does think the immigration position needs to change and become more right-wing or more authoritarian or whatever language you want to use to describe it. But if I guess if I, that's why I think the Home Secretary position is going to be so much more important. And I, you know, 
was slightly taken aback to hear the name David Lammy from two people with good knowledge of Keir's thinking. I obviously have a huge amount of time for David personally, but he is would be an, an ambitious choice in terms of a migration policy and where the country as a whole is. I think, yeah, with Chad's answer, it's going to come down to whether or not you have Annalise, who's been, you know, a long-time ally of Keir Starmer, you know, obviously could do the job. Also a very qualified candidate for Shadow Foreign Secretary. Don't forget she's been an MEP, she's multilingual, et cetera, et cetera. Or do you go for Ed Miliband, who's probably the bigger, who is the biggest economic brain who is closest to you? Or do you decide you need to do something big and radical to get noticed in this time and you go for Rachel Reeves, who, unlike all of the other Home Affairs Select Committee chairs, I don't want to belittle what the Business Select Committee chair does, but the opportunity cost of moving Rachel Reeves out of there versus the opportunity cost of moving Stephen Timms into DLVP or Yvette Cooper into the Home Office or Meg Hillier to anywhere else in the Shadow Cabinet is, I think, a lot smaller in the base brief. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alvarez, my colleagues Patrick Maguire, Stephen Bush and Anush Chakilian. The music was Devil by the Devil, licensed by Creative Commons, and it's produced by Nick Hilton.